So we're going to continue in our Through the Bible series this morning as we look at First uh, and Second Chronicles, or at least the point that we landed on together last week. If you're new here, I made a commitment sometime back that it is my heart and plan to preach from every book of the Bible over some undetermined space of time and kind of do it in chunks and then take a break from the chunk that we're in and, and then just follow the heart of the Lord as we, as we sense Him leading us. So this morning will be our last stop in the Through the Bible stuff for a while. Uh, this morning we'll, we're going to go off to some other things that the Lord has put on my heart and on Tony's heart to share with you over the coming weeks. And if I had to guess, I would say we'll probably get back to our net pick up Ezra in our Through the Bible stuff uh, sometime shortly after the first of the year. All right? So that's kind of the general plan, so you get an idea of uh, what you can expect. Uh, but everything is obviously subject to the Lord's leading, so probably none of that will happen. Okay? So having said that, what I want to do this morning and this time is just to continue, just pick up right from where we left off last week, which I realize may put some of you at a disadvantage having not been here or having not paid attention last week. And so in either case, uh, you are at a sudden disadvantage. But uh, what I like to do in this Through the Bible series is as we're kind of doing a survey view of these books or sections of the Bible, is I always like to begin with a context, talking about what is the larger situation in which this passage is set, and also talk about main storylines, and then we look at a hot spot. I'm not going to do the context or the storylines today. We're going to just assume that you have that, remember that from last week. And if you suddenly get interested in this teaching today, you can always pick up last week online and kind of connect the dots that way. Okay? Say yes, so I shall begin again. All right, very good. Well, last week you may remember that as we were considering First and Second Chronicles together, we got interested in First Chronicles chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. And as it talked about King David's military victories, his conquests, and the way the Lord was really blessing the expansion of Israel's kingdom at this time, you notice that when he, he overtook certain of his adversaries, it said that he captured the chariots and he captured what must have been a couple or several thousand of, of these chariot horses, these horses that were particularly powerful, and that we got really focused on the fact that David did something to those all but a hundred of those horses. What was it? He hamstrung them which meant to disable them in such a way that they could still be used modestly as horses, but they were no longer powerful horses. And uh, we got focused on that, and as the Lord led us in the understanding of that passage, we saw that what was happening was that David was making a statement. First, that he was going to be obedient to anything that the Lord had said, because previously the Lord had said centuries before that the king shall not amass for himself a great number of horses. And we also saw that he was putting his trust in God, not in, in building a great military. That, that as Israel was becoming a superpower in the region, that they continued to hold a tiny army, a tiny military by comparison to their surrounding enemies, and the reason for that was because whenever they went to war with their few number, they overtook large numbers. Why? Because God went before them. And so he was making his statement 
that we will not put our trust in our military, but we will put our trust in God and will be obedient to the things that God has said to us so far. And uh, then last week, so we considered some of the present-day national implications of that. So what does that mean for us as a country now? And I think the Holy Spirit was really pointed with us last week in bringing us to an understanding that as a nation now, we are not trusting in God. But that as a nation, we are trusting in two other things. uh, The power of our military and in our economy. And this is where, uh, between our military and our money, this is where we have placed our trust. Our trust has shifted away from the one true living God. And so that's where we left things. The Lord brought us to a place of many of us stirred us to have a sorrow and a repentance about that. And we, uh, we, we invited the Lord to come and, and to move in us in that way. And it was good. But what it left us with, what there wasn't time to deal with, were some lingering questions like, okay, so that's the national implication. What about me? What about where I live here and now? How do I trust God? What... What do I got to do to be an authentic Christian who trusts God with the details of his life? So we didn't really have an opportunity to really get, get, to, those, get to those specific questions. And uh, so that passage in 1 Chronicles really left us with questions centering around what does it really mean to trust God? And you may remember that it delivered us to a psalm in the Bible. Psalm 20, if you turn in your Bibles there, I want to show you something. This also was written by King David, and the, the, the substance of what's in Psalm 20 here may very well have been inspired by what we, what we saw in 1 Chronicles 18. So the, the whole catching of, uh, or overtaking their adversaries and hamstringing all but a hundred of the chariot horses may have been the very inspiration of Psalm 20, which was also written by David. Psalm 20 says, May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May He send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May He remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May He give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. We will shout for joy when you are victorious and will lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He answers Him from His holy heaven with the saving power of His right hand. And This is so, so focused here in verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And they are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. O Lord, Save the king, answer us when we call. So Lord, we invite you to come now and and in these few minutes that we have together just to bring the point of your heart to us. We live here, Lord. No one in Washington is really asking us what we think. We are not policymakers. We are citizens of this country and we are members of this community and we want to be authentic, fully authentic and released in our walk with you So could you come and just finish, Lord, what you were speaking to our hearts last week and tell us, what does it really mean to trust you? How do we do that, Lord? We invite you to come and fulfill this in Jesus' name. Amen. So 
Let's talk specifics. What does it mean to fully trust God with our lives? I mean, does it mean when the gas gauge is on empty that we should not look for a gas station? So you're driving along and, and you're seeing it's empty. And, and tr- I mean, wouldn't one way of trusting God be to say, well, I'm just going to let God keep my car moving. I mean, is that right? And, and automatically, we as practical people say, well, no, not at all. That's not part of the deal. But I'll bet if I asked... If there's anybody in this room, I bet many hands would go up if I asked you, have you ever been in a situation when you should have been out of gas and somehow your car just mysteriously kept going? Anybody? I mean, look around. I know that's off the hook. I get it. But it happens. But is that a practice then that we should embrace? You're saying no? Okay. Does it mean that we, when we get sick, we should not seek medical help? I mean, does not the Bible say, I am the God that healeth thee? So does that mean then that when we become sick, that we should not go to a physician to seek medical attention? I mean, wouldn't it be trusting God just to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to... Does it mean that we should make no provision for our hoped-for retirement? I mean, did Jesus not say, take no thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow will have enough trouble of its own? Did Jesus not say, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and I'll give you what you need? Did He not? So could an argument be made that trusting God would mean if you're really trusting God that you're, you're not laying away anything for later? How do you answer these questions? What does it mean to really trust God? Well, my short answer to those questions and questions like them is that I believe that we are free to benefit from all kinds of technologies that are at our disposal, including medical technologies, investment strategy technologies, transportation technologies. I believe that if there is something that is moral and ethical as a technology that exists in our culture, then we as authentic, trusting, believing Christians have every right to utilize them Uh, but that they always must be qualified by two conditions. Ask me what they are. First, that we begin in every case with God. That we don't put our trust in the technology, but in God. And so we begin there. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing. means don't worry about anything. Instead, It says, present your requests to God. It says, instead of being anxious, it says, pray about everything. In everything, present your requests to God with thanksgiving. And it says, if you do that, that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So it says, pray about everything. So, you're driving down the road. Oh, look at that. The little gas thing is going boop, boop, boop thing. I need a station. Pray about everything. Push to its extreme. How many of you have ever gone to a particular gas station and run into something, someone, and you were a blessing to them, right? That's living in that zone with God. So you're you're sick. You become sick. What is your first response? Your first response is to give God opportunity for healing. And as he leads you and says, okay, I want you to make an appointment with Dr. So-and-so, you follow that leading, yes? 
So it begins by always making God the first response. The default response is, God, how can I trust you in this? Not when the technologies have failed, go, oh God, oh God, oh God, nothing's working. Which is kind of the normal way of doing it in our culture, right? So trusting God means to think of him first and to go to him first. And the second condition for taking advantage of, I think, every reasonable technology is that we understand that God is personally behind every blessing. That no matter what mechanism, no matter what avenue, whatever technology came to us and provided what seemed to be the answer to our predicament that God is behind it and needs to be thanked for it, acknowledged for it. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is going to pinch some of you a little bit, so buckle up. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses, starting in verse 16. Speaking of God, it says, He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you. So that, it might, so that in the end it might go well with you. Look at verse 17. You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant, which He swore to your forefathers as it is today. So, absolutely, we're perfectly entitled to and logically should take advantage of reasonable, ethical, moral technologies that are available to us, but understanding that God is behind every blessing and give Him the praise for it and give Him the glory for it and include Him in it. You know, uh, I'm a big, uh, some of you know, a big fan of the devotional Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. And I love the way so many times the passage of the day just sort of coincidentally aligns with what it is that I'm working on. And yesterday's, yesterday's uh, devotional thought with respect to trusting God, she said, anxiety is a result of envisioning the future without me. And she's speaking, of course, in the first person for God, using Scripture as her basis. And anxiety is a result of envisioning the future without me. So the best defense against worry is staying in communication with me. When you turn your thoughts toward me, you can think much more positively. Remember to listen as well as to speak, making your thoughts a dialogue with me. If you must consider upcoming events, remember the promise of my continual presence. Include me, I love this, include me in any imagery that comes to mind. This mental discipline does not come easily because you are accustomed to being a god of your fantasies. However, the reality of my presence with you, now and forevermore, outshines any fantasy you could ever imagine. And with respect to trusting God in the daily things, I think there are, she's making two good points. And first of all, that this whole aspect of trusting God is part of our relationship with Him. It's part of a relationship with Him. It's not part of a religion. It's part of a relationship with God. And it's so clear when she says, uh, remember, speaking on God's behalf, remember to listen 
as well as to speak, making your thoughts a dialogue with me. That this is a conversation that God wants to speak to you. That we, we, we need to understand that, yeah, we have the objective authority of the Bible that, that, that speaks to our minds, but we also have the Holy Spirit who speaks to our hearts. And we want to live in this dynamic balance between the two, don't we? It's a relationship. And I think the other point that she's making here is that you have, every single one of you, has the ability and the authority to bring the reality of Jesus Christ into your view. And so as you're thinking about trusting God, or if you worry about the future, she says, if you must consider upcoming events, remember the promise of my continual presence. Jesus said, I'll, 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 I'll go with you to the end of the age. God said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So as you think about, and you get nervous about the future, be it anything at all, he says, just, just remember that God has promised to be there. I love this next line. And include me in any imagery that comes to mind. So you know when you're, getting, you're in that loop and you're, you're mentally forecasting the worst case scenario? Don't raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about? And you're worrying about it? And it could be anything from, what am I going to do for retirement? So what if this thing is growing inside of me? Or whatever, and you're thinking about it and you're extending it and it's not a good picture? Insert Jesus Christ. Insert the Word of God. Insert the power of the Holy Spirit into that moment. You have the authority to do that. And how does that, then that change your understanding? It releases you from fear. It releases the anxiety when you invite in your imagery, she says, imagery, just imagine Jesus showing up at that time. Well, I think this is pretty powerful insight from her. I appreciate what she's done with that book. And it really, really talks about what it means to live a life uh, of trusting God. What I want to do with uh, the rest of the time this morning is I want to I, I share with you a core, if you will, a core of essential realities that when you place your trust in, in this core, this core of trust, uh, that all of the other practical aspects of trusting God will flow from that. So, I mean, what if I told you that I think there are three things that if you made them the central target of your active trust, that the rest of these questions would fall into place? Would you be interested? Thank you for saying that was the right answer. Okay. Something I just want to call the trust core. There are three elements. First, put your trust in the veracity of the Word of God. Put your trust in the veracity of the Word of God. And by that I mean believe fully that the Bible is a true thing. Believe in the truth of the Bible. That's a decision you get to make. And you're going to sit there, some of you, and say, well, can you prove to me that the Bible is true? And I say, absolutely not. I cannot prove to you that the Bible is true. But I have made a decision a long time ago to believe that it is true, and it has proven itself to me again and again and again and again that it is true. But that's not an objective argument for you. And I think you can get hung up in discovering a relationship with God by getting stuck there. You have to believe that the Bible is true, that there's, that there's a truth to it from Genesis to Revelation. 
that, that, that is this crazy, wonderful self-revelation of the character of God, the nature of God, the plan of God, the power of God, the works of God, and that it's true. And you can put your trust in it. Psalm 119, 105 says what? Your word is a, something to my feet. What is it? Lamp unto my feet and a what to my path? A light. It's a lamp and a light. That it's alive. And you make the decision to believe that is true. And you put your trust in it. This is up to you. If you're waiting for someone to prove to you that the Bible is true, then I think the enemy has you cornered. You make a decision to believe that it is true, as you do with so many other aspects of your life. Living as a biblical Christian, listen, prepare to gasp, does not begin with understanding. Gasp. Living as a biblical Christian does not begin with understanding. It doesn't begin as a cognitive experience. There is little about the gospel message that makes sense to my head. Can I just, can we talk? But it doesn't begin there. It begins with faith. It begins with faith. And some of you are stuck because there's something preventing you from believing in the veracity, the truthfulness of the Word of God. And you're stuck. I've known people who wouldn't enter into a marriage relationship. It was all there for them. They were just waiting. The, the partner was just waiting to be married, but they couldn't put their confidence in what the other one was saying. And they missed. They were waiting for some proof that it was all going to be working and it was going to be great and next day would be better than the one before it. And, and their life passed them by, Waiting. Living as a biblical Christian begins with faith. So trusting in the veracity of the Bible means that before you begin to understand its contents, that you make a predetermination that it is somehow, somehow mysteriously absolutely true. This is one of the decisions of faith that we must make. And I'm pretty sure that we're, we're called believers is that right? Not understanders? Come. Come to Jesus. Become an understander. We don't say that. It begins with faith. Now listen, that does not at all mean that we cannot or should not all of our lives seek to understand the Word of God and all its complexities and intricacies and mysteries. But it just doesn't start there. This is where the journey of true understanding really begins, is in faith. And as 21st century Americans, we tend to be exactly the opposite. What we believe is based solely on what we think we understand. I believe that when I understand it. I want you to just think about how many cool things you would miss out on in your life if you really lived your life that way. I'm not going to do it until I fully get it. I mean whitewater rafting. What's, what's the logical reason to put yourself in a little rubber boat and paddle toward dangerous waters that crash you against the rocks? What part of that makes any sense? How many of you have done it? 
Was it fun? Yeah. I know! <laughs> Sheesh. We're going to Nicaragua. Karen and I are taking a group of 20 next week to Nicaragua. Why are we doing that? It doesn't really make any sense. We're going to take these people, and you know, some of you are sitting there, why are you going to Nicaragua when there's so much to be done here? Oh, that's a great question. Guess what? We're doing them both. We're feeding the homeless here every week. Hello? Doesn't mean you can't do them both, right? But it doesn't make any sense to take 20 people and gather up all their money and say these are airline tickets and here's how we're going to do this and this and this. When if we just took that, all that money and just sent it to Nicaragua, it could have done more good. On a logical level, it's like, why are we doing this? Because Jesus said to do it. That's why we're doing it. This is a step of faith, not logic. You should see the people I'm going to be trapped with. I mean, (laughs) these are not people I would have picked out of the church. I'm going to be stuck on airplanes and buses and coffee plantations and children's homes and with these people. And I'm going to be so happy to see you all when I get back. But it's an act of faith. It's an act of faith on their part. They're stuck with me. You miss out on so many things that if you have to understand them. Let's talk about marriage. This is a terrible idea. This is an absurd idea with all of the way we are wired as humans. Sorry, you just got married. Glad you didn't hear this sooner, but... It's a terrible idea. It is. I mean, on its surface, it's just terrible. It's a, it's a leap of faith. It's fully a leap of faith. The walk of faith is really predicated on the firm personal belief that the Bible is true. And what this does is it creates in you a bias of trust. So that when you're reading the Bible you are already predisposed to trust it if you believe it's true. doesn't mean you understand everything you read. I sure don't. But it creates a heart of surrender. Second point in the essential element in the core of trust is the efficacy of the cross of Christ. And by that I mean that you believe, you trust that the, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is a functioning reality. It works that uh, in the functional center of our redemptive relationship with God is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's something that's working. And the walk of trust continues by hurling ourselves into the belief that the death of God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, is absolutely effective in securing our complete forgiveness and restoring our place as sons and daughters into the family of God. We believe that works. And you can put your trust in it. And um, that's what I mean by the efficacy of the cross, that it's a working, functioning reality. And I meet believers all the time who miss the joy of their forgiveness because they're so overwhelmed with the fact that they're still not perfect. And they're not just living in the efficacy of the cross. I mean, I don't know. Has anybody had their first perfect day yet? I, if you raise your hand right now, you're coming up here and finishing because I'm disqualified. I have yet to have my first perfect day. But I live in the joyful reality that in spite of that, 
that Jesus Christ, that it was a historical thing that he did, but it is a continuing functional reality. The blood of Jesus Christ still speaks in my defense. Do I understand that? Absolutely not. Do I embrace it? Absolutely. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be able to tell you how the MD-80 that we ride from Atlanta to Managua, I can't tell you the intricacies of how that works either. But I'm going to buckle myself up in this thing, and I'm going to take about five Ambien, and I'm going to sleep, right? Because I don't know who I'm going to be sitting next to. I won't really take five Ambien. It's like too, too many. Some people just say, I refuse to believe what I don't understand. And you are such hypocrites when you say that. I want to read something I wrote for you this week. See if, if any of this rings true. You get sick, and you go to a specialist physician whom you have never before met, whose name you cannot pronounce, who is from a country you've never seen, and he tells you the scientific name of a disease you have not only never heard of, but the name of which you cannot remember how to pronounce when you get home. And he writes you a prescription for a chemical you have never heard of and writes it on a special piece of paper that you cannot read. And you take it to a pharmacist you do not know and go home and dutifully follow the instructions of putting this unknown chemical into your body with complete confidence that in 7 to 10 days you're going to be absolutely feeling absolutely better. Is that true? So don't look at me and say, I don't do what I don't understand. You object to the to fully embracing the efficacy of the cross of Christ because you say, I don't understand how the welcome to the gospel, the mystery of God. That's why he gets to be God. Third piece of the core, I think, is the ascendancy of God's authority. God's in charge. You put your trust in the fact that God is in charge. Things change for you. You know, God is personally active in the lives of people and in the causes of humanity when we fully surrender to the ultimate rule and reign of his absolute authority when we're living this life of trust. Say, you're in charge, God. You are in charge. I trust in your authority. And as a society, we have confused something. We've confused, or in America anyway, our cultural value for freedom and independence for autonomy. We think that because we are a free, independent nation and free, independent people, that we're autonomous, meaning that we are, a, we are a power and authority unto ourselves. We are not. We are under the authority of the one true living God. The Bible says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. And when we reject the authority of God in us, when we make ourselves the exception to the clearly stated will and way of God, then we cut ourselves off from this life of trust and from the blessing that God has for us. And I believe that we have cleverly devised ways to make ourselves the exception to the clear teachings of Scripture. It doesn't suit me. I read that it doesn't suit me. It doesn't suit me. I'm going to interpret it this way. Well, you're wrong. Somebody needs to tell you. Somebody needs to hit you on the head with a piece of pavement and tell you that you're wrong. And you're dangerously wrong. Some of you right here in this very room are dangerously living 
what I call I know but lifestyles. I know that's what the Bible says, but our circumstances are, your circumstances are relevant to the absolute truth of God. He is the absolute authority. When we keep saying that, yes, but, we become Solomon. We studied him a couple weeks ago. He made himself the exception. And he clearly disobeyed the clear authority of God. He rejected the authority of God, and it proved to be the ruin of his life. I have 700 wives because I want 700 wives. I have chariots and horses because I want them. And he made himself the exception, and it destroyed him. And when we do this, when we make ourselves the exception, when the scriptures are so clear, no matter how hard it is, you guys, I get this. I get that it's hard. But it starts by surrendering to the authority of God. Getting out of the predicaments that we find ourselves in by rejecting the authority of God, making ourselves exceptions, begins by a full heart surrender to the authority of God. You are the authority. I no longer reject your authority. I don't know what happens in my next breath, but I acknowledge your authority, God. You are ruler over me. And when you surrender to the authority of God in your life and all the bigger and smaller aspects of your life, then you begin to live the life of personal trust that God's calling you to. You say, you're in charge, I will do that. So that's really the core. Say, what should I put my trust in? The veracity of the Word of God. That the Bible is absolutely true. Put your trust in that. Put your trust in the fact that the cross is absolutely effective. That it's true you're not perfect. It's true you haven't arrived, you haven't had your first perfect day yet. But in those weaknesses, in those sins, that the cross of Christ has you covered. And, and, and put your confidence, your trust, in the fact that God is absolutely in control. And when you think about this, this core, this core covers the essential aspects of every major creed in the historical church. That as the church has developed over more than 2,000 years, there have been moments when the church has devised creeds, much like that song we sang right before the offering, that state the truth of the central truths of what we believe. And, and what this core, this core will cover is every essential aspect of those creeds, of what believers believe. And so my question is, can you say with any confidence, I trust in those things. Yeah, I trust in that. If you can say with that with confidence, then the life of trust in the smaller things, the practical things, will come. The Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Who wants a straight path? Who, who wants to trade in a crooked path for a straight? Who, who's tired of living this life back and forth, in and out? I mean, let's give it up, right? Well, then trust, it says, in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. That means stop saying, yeah, I know, but you know how it seems to me, God? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're cutting yourself off from the blessing of God. If you place your trust in these core realities and actively give yourself the dynamic relationship with God, then these matters of life will work out in blessed ways you cannot even begin to imagine. And if you don't, they won't. Amen. Father, we invite your presence. 
I love every one of these people, Lord, the ones I know well, the ones I'm just laying my eyes on them for the first time, and yet my heart just is excited to see that somehow in your sovereignty you you drew a path in the earth and their feet couldn't get out of it and they led here because you love them and you have something for them today. I don't believe that a single of us are in this room by accident, by the will of sovereign God. And so we bow before you and we surrender to you, Lord. We surrender to you and we say that you are king, you are Lord, and we mean it, Lord. And we ask your Holy Spirit to come and continue to shine light on our blind spots. These areas that we have permitted ourselves with some kind of rationalization, Lord, that have become elements of our lives. They were once a moment and now they're realities. And I pray for a release of every believer here from those, myself included, put me at the front of the line and shine light on my blind spots, Lord. We invite the light of Jesus Christ, the power of his Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Word of God, just to come now and to shine light in those areas, God. And God, I I believe you have encouragement for us today. I believe this is an encouraging word that you are king. We don't have to be king anymore. You can be king. You can be king of our marriages. You can be king of our our single lives. You can be king of of our school. You can be king of our work. You can be king where we have tried to be king for you. And so we invite you to come, Lord. And to hear our repentance for our rejection of your authority and and to come and just reign over us, rule over us. Rule and reign over this room. This is the only part of the earth we have any influence over is this room, Lord. And so we just invite you with our hearts to come and rule and reign over us and flow in the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray for every seeker here who today is the light's coming on and suddenly they're saying, I want Jesus in my life. I want to know him. I just pray for every believer who's caught up in these, these places that they've been cornered and that you'll come and show them the way out. I pray for the breaking of chains, for the canceling of addictions, for the reorganization of brain chemistry, wherever, whatever is necessary in our lives, God, that would cause us to be able to respond to you in humble surrender. Do it. In the name of Jesus, come and do it. Heal the sick among us and counsel our troubled and give jobs to the unemployed and just bring blessing, God, in response to our surrender to you. Thank you, God. We reject the plan of the enemy for our lives, and as much as it depends on us, we just say to you, Satan, we rebuke you in Jesus' name. Take your hands off of the people of God. And come, Lord Jesus, now. Move among us in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Church, let's stand, please, together. We're going to respond to the Lord. And I would like some prayer ministry people to come on up and make yourselves available to pray for people. Hey, if you're a person here today and you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life and would like to, that's just happening for you today, you can come up to these guys on either side and say that. I'd just like, I'm ready to become a Christian. They'll know what to do. They'll give you a Bible. But anything else you got going on, if you'd like somebody to pray with you, about anything at all, that you can come up to these guys and that's what they're here for.